2 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, while you're doing that, let me uh, introduce this morning's sermon to you. If you spend a lot of time on social media, the chances are that you will have read or even perhaps used yourself the phrase that in the language of online communication is assumed to be really funny. Okay, And that is the line, said no one ever. It's an off-the-shelf punchline designed to come at the end of a deliberately absurd sentence that turns the meaning of the sentence on its head, advertising to the world that the user is clever and playful and is in the tent with all of the cool kids. Uh, some of you will think that I'm too, uh, 2011, that was when it first hit the, uh, the social media world. Uh, but really, it was not new then, it was a craze. Uh, it was an evolution of the craze when I was growing up, which was we just stuck not at the end of a sentence. So we say, oh, the weather's great today, isn't it? Not. Uh, now, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, let me give you a few illustrations of these supposedly hilarious witticisms. So, it would go something like this. Life insurance is an exciting topic of conversation, said no one ever. Or, I log on to Facebook to read intelligent, objective opinions about life, said no one ever. Or, wow, there's a really nice looking pair of Crocs, said no one ever. Or, I really like my passport photo, it kind of captures my best look, said no one ever. Or, my New Year's resolution this year is to get the word swag into my vocabulary more often, said no one ever. What about this one? The really deep lessons of the Christian life come through times of comfort and ease, said no one ever. What you usually hear from strong saints is this. Every significant advance that I've made in grasping the height and the depth and the breadth of God's love and every significant growth in my communion and relationship with God has come through facing and experiencing weakness and suffering. In other words, weakness and suffering is the soil in which God plants his people so that we might grow to know and love him and trust him more. And so today in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we're going to explore the topic of weakness and how we can experience the power of God in the difficulties that we face. We're going to try and answer the question, how can we experience a glad contentment in the midst of weakness? So let's read together 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Verses 1 to 10. This is what Paul writes and says, but God's words most importantly. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, but God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, but God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. And on behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. 
Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. And so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness and insults, hardships, persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Please help us now to understand it and to benefit from it. And may your spirit be at work to strengthen our faith and our knowledge of the all-sufficient power and grace of Christ in the midst of our weaknesses today. May you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, verses 1 to 10 is the end of a much larger portion, uh, a speech that Paul gives in 2 Corinthians that begins in chapter 11, verse 16, and it's known as Paul's fool's speech. And we find in this section Paul boasting about his Jewish credentials, his apostolic authority and qualifications, and his visionary experience. Now, if you read Paul in the in his epistles, you will know that this boasting is not the usual approach or behaviour that he takes. But he's not lost his mind here. He is speaking this way on purpose. You see, the context of Second Corinthians is that a group of so-called super apostles has infiltrated the church at Corinth, and they've begun challenging Paul's apostolic authority and undermining and undercutting his ministry and his message. And they've been going about pretentiously boasting in the flesh, as Paul calls it. They've been boasting about their human power and their human prestige and their experiences and their wisdom. And in all of their boasting, they have bedazzled the Corinthians with this foolishness. And the Corinthians have swallowed it hook, line and sinker. And these super apostles, so-called, have gained a substantial foothold in the church. But they've begun to lead the church astray through false teaching. And they've been fleecing the church out of their resources and enslaving them for their own personal greedy gain. And so Paul decides to go toe to toe with these super apostles and he, begin, he takes on and adopts their foolish boasting strategy. But we can see from chapter 11 and 12 that this is something that is greatly uncomfortable to him. But he does it in order to get himself a hearing with the Corinthians and so to win them back to the truth of the gospel of Jesus. So if you were to look at chapter 11, verses 21 and 22, Paul begins by boasting of his impeccable Jewish history and heritage and pedigree. Then in verses 23 to 29 of chapter 11, he boasts about his apostolic credentials and accomplishments. But it wouldn't be quite what the Corinthians expected because he talks about how his life is overflowing with constant incalculable sufferings for Jesus' sake. Then in chapter 12, verses 1 to 6, Paul breaks a 14-year silence to boast about uh, what was once a secret 
personal ecstatic experience he had where he was taken up to heaven and heard directly from God that there were about things that are too wonderful for man even to utter. And all of this foolish boasting that began in verse 16 of chapter 11 culminates in the punchline of the whole speech, which is verses 9 and 10 of chapter 12, where Paul has something important to say about weakness. And two words stand out in verses 9 and 10 that Paul says he will gladly boast of his weakness that there is a rejoicing and a gladness in the weaknesses he experiences. And also, he says, he's content with weakness, that his weaknesses don't make him complain or grumble or angry, but he is at peace. He is content with his portion and his lot from his Lord and his God. Now, that is very, very strange to me. And probably to you too. Who says that sort of thing? It would go down as one of these statements that says, I gladly boast about my contentment with weakness, said no one ever, except Paul. So the question for us this morning is this, how can we experience glad contentment in the midst of our difficulties and our weaknesses? Well, three questions that are going to help us shed light on this in our remaining time. And I'm very grateful to John Piper for helping me think this through with some of his books and materials that he's written. But three questions to help us shed light on the question of how can we experience a glad contentment in the midst of our weaknesses? Well, the first question to ask is this. What are the weaknesses that Paul is talking about? What does Paul have in mind? How would he define weakness? Because you and I might define it in a different way. So how does Paul define weakness? Well, we have to go to verse 10 for us to understand and have it filled out a little bit more. Because he gives us four words in verse 10 that describe and develop his meaning and definition of weakness. So he says, first of all, insults. That's when people think of clever ways to malign and to mock our faith in Jesus Christ where they pick on us and they insult us and they are rude to us and they make fun of us because of our Christian walk or our Christian life or the choices that we make and the words that we use or the beliefs that we hold. And they're out to make them look stupid and weird and inconsistent. And they say that they're offensive to others. Now, this is one way in which we are extremely familiar because the current media and the culture maligns Christians for our views for example, on sexual ethics or gender, and we're told that we are all kinds of phobes, homophobes, transphobes, whatever it might be, and we're insulted because of our faith in Christ. Then he uses the word hardships. This would probably describe circumstances that are forced upon you against your will. They could be any situation where you feel trapped into something that you didn't plan for, but here you are, and it is hard. In fact, Paul's list in in chapter 11, verses 23 to 28, gives us a good example of the kind of things that he would call hardships. So he would say, um, being shipwrecked, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from his own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, sleepless nights, hunger, thirst, often without food, cold and exposed, and then anxiety for the the churches that he is serving. All of those things would constitute hardships. 
Then he uses another word, persecutions. The idea of physical attacks or abuse or pain that we experience and suffer because of our faith and allegiance to Christ. And again, he describes being beaten with rods and imprisoned because of the sake, for the sake of Christ. And then he uses a fourth word, calamities, which is which could be translated in some in some translations, distresses or difficulties or troubles. Uh, It's kind of a catch all category that talks about the stuff of life that threatens to overwhelm us. The stuff of life that causes anxieties and fears and stress to well up in our hearts that can lead to downcast souls and depression. So it's those kind of things that Paul determines and defines as weakness. Now, notice he doesn't have sin in mind here. No, for Paul, sin is in a different category to weakness. So he's not talking about a weakness for lust or a weakness for drink or a weakness to overeat or bad choices and decisions that we make or sinful behaviours that we engage in that get us into trouble. That's not on his radar here. He's simply talking about the circumstances and situations and experiences that we have in life that expose us to weakness, that expose our weaknesses, burdens that are hard to bear, things that we can't remove or can't change because they're beyond our power and control, weariness, anxiety, pressure on our families, difficult people, chronic illnesses, disabilities, opposition, unexpected trials, red tape and bureaucracy, pandemics. Problems that, to steal Paul's term, we would call thorns in the flesh. Look with me at verses 1 to 4 of chapter 12 again, because here Paul describes amazing revelations of God's glory that he'd been given, where he's been caught up to the highest heaven and seen and heard mind-blowing truths that can't be told on earth. Now, to put that into some context, imagine that this afternoon you're doing the dishes after lunch and a helicopter lands in your street and secret agents jump out of the helicopter in dark suits and sunglasses and earpieces and they escort the Prime Minister Boris Johnson to your front door. And Boris knocks on your door and he asks you to accompany him back on the helicopter back to London. So you're ushered to the chopper by these secret agents and you take off and you fly east to London where you land in the gardens of Buckingham Palace. And you jump off of the helicopter to discover that the Queen is there to greet you and she leads you to a secret underground bunker under Buckingham Palace where the Queen and Boris Johnson together reveal to you all the national secrets of the last 200 years and everything that they've got planned for the next 200 years. And then they put you back on the helicopter, fly you home and you land in the street and you jump out and you're greeted by your neighbour who says, what was all that about? Now, if that was to happen to me this afternoon, I would probably say something like, hey, you know, I'm sworn to secrecy, I'm afraid. I can't tell you anything about what's just happened. But what you should know is that I am probably the single most important person in the country right now. That the Queen and the Prime Minister needed to share with me their secrets. And pride and an overinflated sense of my own worth and importance and glory would quickly rise to the top. Now, Paul says in verse seven twice that to keep him from being proud and from being conceited, he was given a thorn in the flesh. 
a weakness of the like that we're talking about that would stop him from full-blown hysterical spiritual megalomania. So what was Paul's thorn? Well, we can only guess. Perhaps it was the constant opposition and persecution against his ministry and his message, either from the Jews or maybe from the super apostles or people that followed him around trying to undercut his ministry. Maybe it was demonic oppression or spiritual attack that he experienced. Most likely, it was probably some kind of physical malady. And pages and pages have been written about whether it was his eyes or malaria or migraines or epilepsy. We just simply can't know. We have to guess. But whatever it was, it was sharp and it was unpleasant and it was perplexing and it was debilitating and it was humiliating. And it was designed to puncture his pride and self-sufficiency. So it caused him trouble and great frustration, but it made him acutely aware of his human frailty. It was weakness. Now, the second question we need to ask is this. Where do weaknesses come from? Where do these weaknesses come from? What are the sources of such weakness? Do they come from Satan? Do they come from God or do they come from both? Well, in verse 7, Paul calls this thorn in the flesh a messenger of Satan that was given to him to harass him, literally to torment him. So one answer is that sometimes weaknesses that we experience do come from Satan. That Satan afflicts the children of God through his demons and through his messengers with the aim of destroying us and leading us into misery and unbelief and ultimately into death. So in one sense, Paul's thorn was something bad that Satan was doing to hinder and to harass him and his gospel ministry. But it's not quite that simple because Satan is not the only one at work here. Paul is very clear that God is at work too. We see that from two reasons. Firstly, Paul describes the thorn as something that was given to him to prevent pride. Now, that certainly wouldn't be something that Satan would want. But God, as a father, knows exactly what Paul needs and even especially what Paul didn't need, what Paul needed to avoid. And so we can read into this uh, or read out of this is a, is a better way of saying it, that from Paul's experience that some thorns are given by God to awaken sin in our hearts and some thorns are given to discipline us when we are sinning so that we might turn from sin and repent. But other thorns are given by God to prevent us from sinning, especially the dark, dangerous sins of pride. So God gave Paul this thorn because he'd seen more of God than almost anybody else. And he used Satan's hostile intentions for Paul's holiness. And so the thorn that Satan was trying to use to destroy Paul, God actually used ultimately for Paul saving and sanctifying, the, the work of saving and sanctifying him. And Paul was able to discern the overriding providence of God and how God always works good out of evil. But there's a second reason why we know this is God at work as well, is because Paul prayed for the removal of that thorn. Paul tells us in verse 8, three times he prayed that God would take the thorn away, but God said no. And he gave him the answer in verse 9, that there was a 
purpose in the pain. Just like the Old Testament tells us about Job, where God permitted Satan to afflict his righteous servant and God turned the affliction for his good purposes. So here in 2 Corinthians 12, God permits Satan to afflict his righteous servant Paul, but God is ultimately behind it, turning the affliction for his good purposes. So yes, sometimes the source of our weakness may be Satan and his destructive designs for us, but always our weaknesses are designed by God for our good. That's why the truth about the sovereign grace of God is so precious in the midst of hardship and suffering and calamity. God is in control of Satan and Satan can do nothing to God's children that God does not design with infinite skill and wisdom and love for our good. And then the third question, what is the purpose of these weaknesses? Is there a goal or an aim for why weaknesses come? Why do Christians face insults and hardships and persecutions and calamity? Well, we've already said in the last question that God has a strategic purpose and design for all the unpleasant and perplexing weaknesses that we face and experience. And painful thorns that right now feel like a curse can become a blessing and can become unexpectedly precious to us because of what they produce in us and for us. You see, if we're in Christ, then the weaknesses that we experience can't interrupt or interfere with God's love for us. Paul tells us that in Romans chapter 8. And here, even our worst trials and our experiences in the, in the loving, powerful hands of our God serve our good, drawing us to him, strengthening our faith in him that we might endure. They prepare us to comfort others. They expose and uproot remaining sin in our hearts and they carve out deeper and stronger wells of joy in Jesus. Paul suffered more than most, more than I have perhaps more than you have. And he never minimizes the very real agony of suffering, but he never lets suffering rob him of the good that God was working in him. Consider 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 to 9 and 14 to 16, where Paul says this, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. And so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look to the things that are, uh, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. You see, Paul's affliction was intense, but it was outshone by the blessings that came through the suffering. Like a glorious sunrise that conquers the dark of a stormy night before. In verse 8, Paul tells us that he prayed and he pleaded for God to remove the thorn. 
Paul wasn't a masochist. He didn't delight in pain. He wanted relief, but his request was denied. And it wasn't because God couldn't do it. It's because that God had something better to give to Paul. You see, God did answer Paul's prayer. It just wasn't the answer that Paul was expecting or thought was best for him. God's response was a richer and greater and more profound response than anything Paul knew to ask of God. Because it wasn't just simply deliverance from an affliction. It was the promise of the all-sufficient grace and power of Jesus Christ in the midst of weakness. Look with me at verse 9 again. In the midst of the distress and weakness that Paul felt, Jesus says this to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Jesus promised that Paul and you and me would never, ever lack grace or power to protect to sustain, to preserve, and to persevere him and us through any weakness that we face. God's purpose in the pain was not an absence of affliction. It was not to take to Paul, here, just have a trouble-free life. It was the full and ever-present, never-ending supply of God's grace and power in all of Paul's weaknesses and in all of our weaknesses too. Paul's thorn in the flesh became a platform for the resurrection power of Jesus to be displayed in his life. And your weakness and my weakness and your thorn and my thorn are a platform planned and purposed by God to make us a showcase for the power and the grace of Jesus Christ. And that happens not by eradicating all weaknesses and affliction from our life. It happens by giving us strength to endure and even to rejoice in the midst of trials. For in all of our weaknesses and our sufferings, the glory of Jesus' all-sufficient grace is magnified. Now, the chances are that there is something in your life right now that is thorny and uncomfortable and a weakness. Maybe there's several things. Maybe you've listened and you've got two questions. Maybe the first question is this, well, can I, can I pray about this? Because it appears that Paul prayed three times and then he stopped praying and I've been praying repeatedly, so now do I have to stop praying about this? Well, let me say this, it is absolutely okay and good to plead with God for sufferings to pass us by. Paul clearly did, Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane. So we should pray earnestly and we should pray repeatedly and we should pray, pray persistently. And we should not be afraid to plead with God again and again and again for the things that afflict us. In fact, Luke 18, I think, is the, persist the parable of the persistent widow. Jesus encourages us to pray repeatedly. And yet somewhere in those prayers, we should also pray that God would cultivate a heart within us that receives and embraces and even boasts in our weaknesses and trials. Because we know God's all wise, always loving, all sufficient grace and power to help us in the midst of them. But maybe you've got another question. Maybe you're in the midst of weakness right now. 
And you're asking, where is God's power in all of this? Now, if you're like me, often I want God's power to change the circumstances. But actually, it seems that it pleases God most to use his power to change people rather than circumstances. And God wants us to hear his voice this morning and those words of assurance from verse nine. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God's power is manifested to the weak and to the broken, not to the proud and the self-sufficient. And as we humbly acknowledge our weaknesses, as we humbly acknowledge ourselves, as Peter would write in 1 Peter, under the mighty hand of God, and we cast our anxieties upon him because he cares for us, he will lift us up at the right time. But as we humbly acknowledge our weaknesses, as we humbly acknowledge our brokenness, verse 10 reminds us that the all-sufficient power of Jesus rests upon us. Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. That word rest there is the same vocabulary that's used in Exodus chapter 40, verse 34, where God comes and covers the tent of meeting and fills the tabernacle with his glory. And it's the same vocabulary and words that's used in John 1:14, where it said that Jesus comes and dwells amongst us, literally tabernacles amongst us. And we see his glory. The glory is of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. So in verse 10, in all of our weaknesses, God promises to come and pitch his tent with us. To cover us over. With his grace and power in the midst of our weakness. He doesn't just send power from on high. He comes and he pitches his tent with us in the midst of weakness to strengthen us to endure, to strengthen our faith, our faith to trust him, to strengthen our hope in eternal realities that we might experience his power and grace now. That we might be gladly content with what he is leading us through. And so those weaknesses, those things that we're embarrassed about, the things that we wish we could change, that we wish we didn't struggle with, that we want to hide from one another and from the world around us, they are all part of God's strategy to reveal himself to us and to a watching world. And it is through those weaknesses that more than our strengths, that God demonstrates that he exists and that he rewards those who seek and trust him, as it says in Hebrews 11 verse 6. So the really deep lessons of the Christian life come through times and ease and comfort, said no one ever. But my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness, says Jesus every time. Let's pray.